The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let us open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and the story is the triumphal entry. So I realized, obviously, a few months ago for Easter, uh, you know, we did a whole service on the triumphal entry, and Palm Sunday, as it is called. So I want to start there. We're going to read through that story, verses 1 through 11, but I want to give you a little different uh, flavor on this. I want to kind of tell you a story. It is, I'm going to say, you know, I'm a storyteller. I don't know if you guys know that, but I'm a storyteller. I come from a family of storytellers. I love stories. I love a good story. The Bible's the greatest story ever told and is filled with all kinds of amazing, wonderful, glorious stories. But I believe this is my favorite story of them all. And so within this is the story of a Jewish wedding. And uh, so let's bow our heads and let's pray that we hear what the Lord says. Father, I just thank you and I pray that your Holy Spirit will grab our minds and our hearts and that you will speak to us and they will hear what you have to say because I believe that this is your favorite. Um, This this is ultimately what it's all about. And uh, it is truly an incredible story and it's not one we just read about. And it's not one that we just learn. We're in this story, the greatest story of all time. So may we hear what the Spirit would say to us this day. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so um, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when they, the disciples and Jesus, drew near Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you just say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So if I can paint the picture, this is... um, Let's say that the stage, which is kind of elevated here, that represents the Mount of Olives. And and so at the peak of the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus comes to the top, and he is sitting on this little donkey. Now, the Mount of Olives descends, just like this stage goes down, whatever, three, four feet, um, and it's the Kidron Valley. And then it's not very wide, kind of like you know, similar to this, it's a short distance from the edge of the, of the podium here and the beginning of the rows. And then very gradually, you go up from the front row. It's a little higher in the back, right? So you represent Mount Moriah. In the very back, in the middle of the church where the four doors are there, that would be the Temple Mount. So you're sitting on Mount Moriah. There's where the Temple Mount is. Here's the Kidron Steep Valley. And then an even taller mountain than Mount Moriah is the Mount of Olives. We would estimate that there are now about two million people here because it's Passover week. Uh, It is the Sunday before coming Passover. Every Jew by law in the Bible is required to be there for Passover. So the city of Jerusalem has swelled, you know, four times maybe its normal size as Jews from the north, south, east, and west have all come and converged there. 
Now, for three years, Jesus has been teaching, preaching, ministering. He goes up to Galilee. Most of the miracles are up there. But three times a year, all Jews had to go down to fulfill all the, you know, the seven feasts. They had to be in Jerusalem three times a year. So Jesus would come to Jerusalem three times a year um, for three years and do teachings and miracles and then back up to Galilee, back and forth for three years. After three years of this ministry, which is now, he's come Palm Sunday to the last week of his earthly life and ministry on earth before his death, burial, and resurrection. And the two million people who have gathered by now, the number one topic of conversation is Jesus of Nazareth. Is he the Messiah? Have you heard what this guy has done? Have you heard his miracles? No prophet was ever greater than Jesus of Nazareth. No one has ever done the miracles he has done. He has far exceeded them all as a prophet, as a teacher. Have you ever listened to him tell a story, teach a parable, give a sermon or a message? No one. And he speaks with authority, with power. Demons come flying and screaming out of people. Disease flows off of people. It's like when he opens his mouth, heaven comes flowing out. Even several of the dead are raised. A week ago, Lazarus was raised. And this could be the year. So now, with all of that expectation, it just so happens that on this Sunday before Passover happens to be what's known in Jewish culture as Lamb Selection Day. If they have two million people, you need at least you know, one lamb for about every 10 to 12 people. So there's going to be like 200,000 lambs sacrificed for this coming Passover. And it's on this day that we call Palm Sunday uh, that, that is known as Lamb Selection Day. This is the day every family had to pick their lamb without spot or blemish. And it's interesting, that's the day on Lamb Selection Day that Jesus stages something. He knows. There's, there's people all up and down the Mount of Olives. They're down in the Kidron Valley. They're up all over the Mount Moriah and up on the Temple Mount. Basically, the two million people are right there. And this is the day, set-up day. Lamb selection day, and he says, I want to sit on a donkey. And when Jesus sat on that little donkey, and the people around him at the top of the mountain said, ah, they start screaming. They start yelling. Well, when you're there, you can hear from Mount Moriah somebody screaming on the Mount of Olives, let alone the Kidron Valley, and up the Mount of Olives, and the people start going crazy when they see him sitting on the donkey. They knew the prophecy of Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9, 500 years earlier, Zechariah said to them prophetically, here's when you'll know the Messiah has come. He'll be humble, lowly, sitting upon a little donkey. So Jesus says, get me the donkey. And if they say, give you, you know, like, what, what do you mean you want our donkey? He's going to borrow. By the way, Jesus borrowed a few things. He borrowed a donkey. He may want to borrow you. <laughs> I'm not comparing. I'm just saying. <laughs> he borrowed a tomb. He borrowed it. He only needed it three days. But anyway, so he borrows this donkey, and he sits on the donkey, and they all start going, he's going for it. He's making a move to be our Messiah. And so they start screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They could not wait as a nation of two million people sick and tired of the boot of Rome on their neck. Use that power and throw Rome off of us and bring that kingdom that David talked about. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he's basically setting that all up. 
And probably the pe- owners of the donkey were followers, believers, or they'd heard of Jesus. And when they said, Jesus needs it, they go, okay, he can have it. So then it just gets more exciting. And then when all this was done in verse 4, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king has come to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out. So they're yelling, they're shouting. Hundreds of thousands of people, louder than any stadium you've ever imagined. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Answer, Is he the Messiah? Is he the one? And they're shouting that he would be. So the multitude said, This is Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So this sets the whole stage. It was very powerful and very moving and very dramatic. And so we we talked about just a few months ago how this was the beginning of the fulfillment of that week, and then he would go to the cross, and literally on Passover, while they're sacrificing lambs, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed, literally fulfilling that, and then was raised on the third day. What I want to share with you is, is a little bit different perspective. I want to I kind of zoom back and give you uh, the bird's eye view, the bigger story of what's going on. I believe that on that day as Jesus sat on that little donkey, this was the gift that had come from heaven for all of mankind, and Jesus is there on that day. Yes, he's the king. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he is also the heavenly bridegroom. And the whole reason that this week has come that will culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection is that he comes as a bridegroom who literally left heaven to gain and do whatever it took to gain a bride. The heavenly bridegroom declares his love and intention for his bride. I want to share this. I put this little paragraph in your notes if you have it, but uh, just to note, you know, Jesus was Jewish, and he did things like a Jew. So when we look at Jewish law, and customs, we discover many of the motivations for particular actions of our Lord. So in light of that, I want to take that scene of you thinking of Jesus that day, people screaming, he's the Messiah, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to now fit another picture in there to let you see him as a bridegroom. For that, we need to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. This is during that same uh, last week of Jesus on earth. And John 14, beginning in verse 1, it's Jesus said to the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. See, he's been telling them, I'm going to go, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I'll rise. So don't be troubled in your hearts. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that were not so, I would have told you. But I am going, I want you to read, I am leaving you shortly. After I arise from the dead, I'm going back from whence I came. I'm going to heaven, 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, what I want to share with you is what, what Jesus just said in those three verses is what every young Jewish bridegroom would say to his bride. It's the same speech that he would give. So it's a little bit different than our culture. In our culture, engagement is, you know, that, that time when, as a young man, you, you get down on your knees and you look up into your beautiful uh, bride-to-be and you say, I love you and I want to marry you. Will you marry me? And she responds, yes, and you hug and you kiss and you give her an engagement ring and now you are engaged. And then you talk, you go to the family and you pick a date when you will have the wedding and, and come to a place where you have witnesses, you get signed, becomes legal, and then you are married. It's a little bit different in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, at the engagement before the wedding, when you get engaged, from the day of your engagement, you, the marriage may be a year, a year and a half away. When you are engaged, you are legally married from that day. What I want you to know and understand is if you are here this morning as a Christian, as a believer and follower and lover of Jesus Christ, guess what? Biblically, you and I are engaged right now to Jesus Christ. We are legally already married. Now, the wedding supper that talks about the book of Revelation when Christ comes again, that's still yet to come. That's in the future. But literally, right now, we are legally married to Him. So then, once that happens, so the young man would go to the bride's father's house, and he had to do three things there. Number one, he had to share his vows. Now, he would redo vows at the wedding, but on the day of engagement, he gave his vows. This is who you are to me. This is what you mean to me. This is what I am promising you. This is our marriage covenant because it's legal. And again, according to Jewish law, we're legally married today. So here's my whole heart. Here's everything that I have, everything that I am promising to you, my covenant of love for you. He would share his vows. Secondly, once he shared his vows and she received them, they would drink a cup of wine together. And by the way, when she drank the cup of wine, what, she, what he was saying is, this cup represents my vows and promise to you. By her drinking and accepting the cup, she is saying, yes, I receive your vows and your promise, and I give the same back to you, and I'm saying yes. So drinking of the cup was the girl saying yes. Then thirdly, he had to pay a dowry. He had to, he, you literally have to buy a Jewish bride. And what's interesting is that the Jewish bride, the price for, you know, purchasing her, because it was an agricultural community and in their mind, you know, sons can go out in the fields and labor, not that girls don't work, they do, but he's like, look, you, you've got to, it was like a father saying, she's my princess. Every father has a special relationship with their daughter. So if you want my daughter, you got to love her as much as I do. And he would set his price according to his love. It's going to cost you this much. And then for the young man to go, I do love her that much. I'll show it, and I'll prove it, and I'll pay. This is what I'm going to pay. So that's kind of what the whole background of this. So what I want you to know is the Bible is really a love story. It goes all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, which was called paradise. 
Probably Eden was on the top of the tallest mountain on planet Earth at the time. At the top of the mountain, there was a paradise that was literally kind of a combination of heaven on Earth. God's visible, manifest, Shekinah glory presence, walked with Adam and Eve. It was heaven on Earth, and, and it was all one, and it was all married together, and it was beautiful. And that's where it all begins, in a garden. The entire Bible then is a love story. And I want to just say there is something very powerful and romantic, not only about weddings, but especially about royal weddings. Now, as Americans, recently we, we had an experience where we kind of got brought into this whole royal thing. Um, there is, in England, they've kept, you know, the crown, and they've got a queen, and they've got princes and princesses and royalty. Now, it's not quite the same as it was a long time ago, because a long time ago, when you were the king and you were the queen, you also had all governmental authority. In England, they've separated out a little bit the politics over here and the representation a little bit over here, but I still think it's kind of cool. Uh, and, and then this one was especially nice for Americans because this young lady uh, named Megan who was an American young lady, and she was a model, and then she was an actress, and had a pretty good life. And then of all things, she falls in love with a prince, and the next thing you know, she's getting married to this prince. They go into the church, and it was beautiful, uh, you know, and he says, I will, and this American girl says, I will. It's kind of interesting. Every one of the great stories and the Disney stories will talk about romance, and there's, a, there's something royal about it. There's a prince and a princess, and them coming together. There's something beautiful and precious about it. And then when they walked out of the church, they go literally into a carriage, Right? And all of the people are there, and, and the people just want to see them. They just want to see the spectacle, but it's also on TV. And when they finally make it out on the street, there's an entire nation waiting to greet the couple who just got married in the church. How would you like to pay for that wedding? <laughs> a whole nation waiting for them, but I want to add to that. Not only was there a whole nation waiting for that couple to walk out of the church after they shared their vows. But watching online and all the rest of it, two billion people with a capital B were watching all around the world. You want to tell me there's not something special, not only about love, not only about romance, but you mingle romance and marriage, two countries coming together, a boy and a girl who grow up to become a prince and now a princess, and they're royal and they're regal. And I just want to say this. If you are a believer, you are called in the Bible the bride of Christ. You are going to be in a wedding that will be bigger than that. It's going to blow that one away. All of heaven and all the universe will be watching as you and I participate in that wedding with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to note this. The bridegroom makes his vow. I want to just break it down a little bit. The bridegroom makes his vow of love to the bride. The church is called the Bride of Christ in the New Testament for a good reason, because it is we who have a covenant relationship with the one who forgave our sins. It's we who will drink the cup with him. It is we for whom the price, the dowry, has been paid. We're the ones to whom he said, 
I am now going to prepare a place for you. So here, here's what would happen. So the, back to the story of a Jewish wedding. He, he makes his vows. They drink a cup of wine together where he says, this is my promise and covenant. She says, yes, I receive it. Thirdly, he pays the dowry price. And then guess what happens? Every young Jewish man would say the same thing. Now I'm leaving you. And she goes, where are you going? Well, every young Jewish girl knew exactly where he's going. He goes, I now have to go, per our tradition and custom, I have to leave you and go to my father's house, which may be on the other side of the village. And when I am there, I have to build our bridal home. That's my responsibility. And by the way, it is not left up to the son what he will build. It is left up to the bridegroom's dad. And there was a very logical reason for that, because if it was left up to the son, he'd say, we're putting up a pup tent tonight, getting ooh, married tonight, and then we begin our lives together. And they're like, no, 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 no. No, you're going to build a home, you're going to build a house. And the father of the bridegroom would say, you're going to come on my land and on my territory, that's going to be, I adopt her as my daughter-in-law, and these are going to be my grandchildren, and you're going to build a home. When you finish building a home worthy of her and my future grandchildren, then I will give you permission to get married. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, so the young man would give the same speech. I have to leave you. I have to go to my father's house, and I have to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus just said. And then she'd say, well, when are you coming back? And he'd say, well, I can't give you the day or the hour of our wedding. That was left up to the father, the father of the bridegroom. And the reason was that, you know, so he builds the house. Dad, I'm done. And there was a little game right at the end when the house was all ready and it's all built. And the father would find something that, you know, I wish you would do this a little bit better. Could you change that and make it a little nicer for the kids? Would you do this? And the son's going, Dad, you're driving me nuts. Yes, and he would race to try to finish that. But it's all within about a two-week period of time, right? It's close. The custom of the Jewish father was, and the son is just waiting for the father and dad to say, okay, now you can go get her. So the fathers had a custom. They would wait until the middle of the night or at midnight when their son was so exhausted from trying to cherry out the house to satisfy his dad that he was fast asleep. And when the dad knew that his son was so tired, so exhausted, he'd spent everything he had in that house, he would go in the middle of the night, grab him, shake him, wake him up, and say, okay, son, tonight you can get your bride. And literally, from the time that he woke his son up, he immediately would wake up in the dead of night, go get his best man and all the other best men, and they would start running through the streets of the villages and the farms, and they were shouting at the top of their lungs, here we come, right? So what's the bride doing? Well, she's on the other end of the village, and she knows that it's been a year, it's been a year and a half, the house is basically done, it's that last couple of weeks, you know, the father's playing this game, it's any night, and they knew the custom is usually to come at night, so literally every Jewish girl was snatched or abducted or stolen in the middle of the night. This added to the suspense and to the romance of the whole thing. So she knows, well, the last thing a girl wants to be caught in the middle of the night without her dress, without her makeup. So she would get her dress laid out, ready to jump into, and she's got her makeup over here ready to go. And then she would invite her girlfriends to come and do a slumber party for the couple of weeks. And two by two, they would take turns watching through the night. So she gets her beauty rest and they're laughing and talking and telling stories, and they have to have their oil in their lamps and the fire's burning. What are they doing sitting there in the night, looking out the window, talking, telling stories? 
They're waiting to hear the shouts of the young men. You can hear for about a mile, you know, out in the valley like that. When they hear the hoops and the hollers of the young men, they are supposed to go wake her. They're coming. Get your dress on. Get your makeup on. We only have a little bit of time. So that is the background of all these things. So I want you to look at this. The bridegroom makes his vow of love to the bride. I want to look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's where God made the covenant and vows to us. Let's read it out loud together. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, God made two covenants. One's called the old, the other one's called the new. In the old covenant, God wrote His vows, His love for us on tablets of stone. We failed them, we broke them, and we also broke His heart, and the people of God broke His heart. Did God give up on His love for mankind? No. God just doubled down. He goes, I'm going to make another covenant, I'm making a new covenant, and I'm going to make one. There will never be another one that will be needed after this. Because I'm going to take my heart, my nature, my character, my spirit, my power, my glory, my, my gifts, my royalty, and I'm going to write it with my own finger on the fleshly tablets of your heart. And then I'll fill you with my spirit so you can live up to it and you can enjoy it. And not only that, I will pay for all of your sins. For all of those who are believers and all who have failed and all who have fallen short and all who are broken and all who have given up, I will pay for all of your sins. And not only will I forgive you of every wrong thing that you have ever done, I will, once I forgive you, I will forget you ever did it in the first place. How many can say amen to that? That's the new covenant. That is the new covenant that is given to you and I. It was as if the bridegroom came to his bride and said, I'll pay the price for you, even if you stumble in the year that I am away. I will forgive you, and I'll forget it. And even if you try to break my covenant with you, I will not allow my covenant to be broken. I'll pay for your sins myself. So this whole week from Palm Sunday and all that week leading up to Passover, uh, and Jesus going to the cross, Jesus was giving His vows of love to the bride. Now, secondly, the bridegroom then drinks the cup with His bride. And I, I, so the cup kind of represents symbolically the price that will be paid for the bride. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, He was prepared to pay the highest price. He came with a new covenant for all of mankind, not only for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, for all the families shall be blessed through this covenant. And then he said, I'm going to sign it with my own blood. Literally, it will be signed in my own blood. And this is literally the cup of the new covenant. Now, what's interesting is when God made covenants, promises, oaths in the past, like with Abraham, there's still, because we're sinners, had to be blood and sacrifice, but it was animals. Later, he made another covenant with Moses, and still it was the blood of animals and sacrifices. But now in the new covenant, God says, no, this covenant will be ratified in the blood of my own son, the bridegroom. He is the one that will fill the cup. And so literally, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 
26 and uh, chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is having the Last Supper. Literally, the Last Supper is like a marriage vow in a Jewish wedding context. And what he is saying to the church, the bride. So let's read it out louder, out loud together. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I believe Jesus no doubt gave thanks and said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Now, when they drank that cup, and it was a cup of wine, the fruit of the vine ultimately is the bride. Ultimately, it's the church. The reason he's willing to shed his blood is because that cup represents the sweetness of the intensity of his love for his bride, which is the church, and the church is you and I who believe in him. We are that sweet fruit of the cup that he drinks all the way. And thus he told the disciples, I want you to drink this cup. I'm drinking it. I love you. I've made my vows to you. I'm going to sign it with my own blood. And then he went to pay the price. But I want you to drink it with me here, all of you. Because when you drink the cup, it's you saying yes, yes, yes to the promise, yes to the bridegroom. Yes, I want to be part and married to you for all time and for all of eternity. The New Testament itself is the copy of the contract that we have. So I want to say to those who are believers, and every time we share in communion and we drink the cup, we are saying like a bride, yes, Lord, yes, heavenly bridegroom, yes, I am married to you, and yes, I am looking and waiting for you to return. That's why the Bible says you were bought with a price. You are literally purchased. So we have a responsibility now. What, what does the young girl do for that year, year and a half while he's building the house? Did you know that when she went out and about, she had to wear a veil? She was set apart. What that veil represented at that time was, that beautiful young lady is no longer available for all you young guys that were wondering. She's taken. She's off availability. She is spoken for. And by seeing the veil, whenever she would go in public, it was a way of saying, somebody loves me already. Somebody made vows to me, and I already said yes to him. In fact, he's building my bridal chamber. I am set apart. I am consecrated. I am holy. I cannot wait to begin our new lives together. And it just happens that I married the most valuable and, and wealthy and regal royal. He's a king. He's a prince. He's a king. And I am going to be married to him forever. Can I hear an amen and hallelujah? That's where we're at. Now, we, though we are, we're saved by grace, we just receive his love. Um, and he says, I'm going to forgive everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we're forgiven so that we can keep on sinning and doing whatever we want. He says, I'm going to forgive everything, and then I'll forget your sins. But the idea is that now that you're beloved, now that you're betrothed, now that you're engaged to him, it's like, well, I want to I wanna be worthy because we're, we're, a, we're a poor little orphan that has been brought into this royal romance. We want to be worthy of the throne upon which we shall sit. We want to become worthy of the crown that we shall wear on our head. We want to match the character of the greatest love that is known in all of the kingdoms of heaven and earth. So as far as our salvation goes, 
That's totally bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. We cannot lose it. We cannot enhance it in any way. But we are to do good works, not adding to salvation, but starting to grow worthy of the character of the one we're going to marry. Does that make sense? So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, let's read this out loud. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We didn't get saved or chosen because we earned it. Uh, we, we received it by grace, through faith. It's a gift, and there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation. He goes on to say, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now we do what we do to honor Him, to grow in Him, to become worthy of all that He has given for us. And then thirdly and finally, the bridegroom pays the price. He pays for the bride. How much did the bridegroom pay? So I'm going to just imagine now, let's, let's go back a couple thousand years ago, Jewish custom, okay, I get it. The young guy sees this girl, he falls in love, he makes the vows, they drink the cup, and then the father says, so you want to marry my daughter? Here's the price. I wonder if there was ever a young man that said, man, I love this girl, she is so beautiful, I can't believe that. I... How much was that again? <laughs> Excuse me. What, what, what did you, could you just say that very slowly again? What, what was the price you just put on her? I'm sure that there were those who looked and thought and questioned, and then a decision has to be made. Well, we come to our own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom of heaven from eternity, who came from heaven to earth to find a bride, to love her, to covenant to her, to drink the cup with her, to write it in his own blood, but now for the price. And we read, interestingly, that when, you know, Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, interesting, isn't it? The whole love story began in the Garden of Eden, and the whole story of Jesus ends up in another garden. And there, he's talking to the Father, and what is he saying? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Because the price, what's interesting is the father of the bridegroom, Jesus, also is the father of the bride. Remember, the father of the bride sets the price for the young men. God our Father said to his own son, you can't pay for this in gold and silver, son. You're going to pay for this with your life. And if I may use the analogy, Jesus staggered at the price. I mean, literally, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, let's read it out loud together. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus staggered at the price. He's God. He's eternally God. He, he didn't begin in Bethlehem 33 years ago. He's, his, one of his titles is the Ancient of Days. He had been one with his Father. God is life. God is light. God is eternity. And now you're asking me as the Son of God to die? But Son, on the third day, because you're pure and holy and blameless, you will be resurrected by my Spirit, and you shall live. He staggered, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And I believe that that was proof that he took one long, hard look at you and I, the bride, 
and said, is she worth it? And the final analysis was, Dad, if that's the price, done. Not my will, thy will be done. I'm paying the price. So what I want to say to you this morning is, and this is why eternity is going to be what it is, and everybody is going to stand before the throne of God, because there has never been a price so high that has been paid for a bride in the history of the universe than the price that was paid for you. It doesn't get any higher than that. Even the angels were like, are you like serious right now? God asked his son to pay that for her? And Jesus was willing to pay for her? And once he paid the price, you know, one of, one of the things that uh, the, the, the girl, you know, sometimes, you know, he's been gone a year, year and a half, and yeah, you heard he's building the house. And sometimes, you know, the friends would come or mock or make fun or they'd say, are you sure he's coming back for you? You've been waiting a long time. And there would be certain brides that would smile with absolute confidence and say, I don't even have a mustard seed of doubt that he's building me a place and he's coming back. You know why? Because I know the price he paid for me. And there's no way he's letting the price that he paid go. He will come back. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Amen? That's what our Lord has done for you and for me. So, what does the bride do? The bride is waiting and watching for her bridegroom. The bridegroom, for, uh, for his part, is preparing the, the place with everything that he's got. The bride, on her part, is obligated to do a lot of waiting. Again, she is consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. Uh, and she is to get prepared and to get ready uh, for him to come. She is truly a lady in waiting, with oil lamps, waiting for the midnight call. But there was no doubt he would return. And some would look at it and say, well, man, you know, talk about a long time. You're going from an earthly analogy to spiritual analogy. It's been 2,000 years. It's a long time to wait. But there's a place in the Bible, in the New Covenant, that says that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. In eternity, it's nothing. So we're going, are you kidding? Like, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And the Lord is going, are you kidding? I've only been gone the weekend, and I'm coming back tomorrow. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, where are we today? We're not the beginning of, of this whole thing. That was 2,000 years ago. Many Bible prophets and so forth believe that it is at the beginning of the third day. We're somewhere near the beginning of that third day. And by the way, third days are very special to God. That's the day His Son rose from the dead. And many believe we're literally right now on the edge. It's like that last two weeks. The house is basically done. The father and the son are in this game, dad, dad, dad. And the father's just waiting. Any moment, he's going to say, son, go get your bride. Now, I know that there are some people that are like, well, you know, I'm going to wait. A lot going on in the world. But when it all comes down, I'm going to make a decision. Now, let me just say, uh, these are, you know, my memories of my friends in Alcon. But anyway, so <laughs> they would say that. And I would say, no, you don't understand. When the Lord comes, he's coming in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Not in the blink of an eye. He's coming in the twinkle of an eye, the, when light twinkles in your eye. A twinkle is a lot faster than a blinkle. <laughs> Literally, 
when the Lord comes, it could come so fast that you could blink, and by the time you blinked and open your eyes, you've already been in heaven a little while. So I want you to read with me this last scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. Let's read it out loud. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, right in that phrase where it says caught up, if you were reading the Bible in Latin, the word caught up is rapturos. So there are people that say, well, we're raptures not in the Bible. Well, it is if you speak Latin. And we have many words in our English language that have come from the Latin language. And that word is in the Bible. It means raptured. And what it means is in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, if you wait and the Lord comes at midnight and you're not ready, you're, you're going to have to go through a lot of stuff. Read the book of Revelation. It's not fun. It's not cool. So the idea is be ready now, come what may. You're watching, you're waiting, you're ready, you're prepared, and you're ready to go when he comes. Amen? Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.